Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, a partner in Freshfield's Washington and Brussels offices, and I'm delighted to be returning as your host of the Essential Antitrust podcast. September 2022 was a really eventful month for U.S. competition authorities with decisions issued for a number of key merger challenges. The DOJ's suits to block the United Change Health merger and the U.S. Sugar Imperial Sugar merger, and the FTC's challenge to Illumina Grail. In all three of these cases, the U.S. agencies lost. Now, this trend presents some interesting learnings for clients who are considering deals that implicate the U.S., and even more so deals that include the U.S. and a multinational element. So I'm joined here today by three of my partners to unpack some of that. First, we have Julie Elmer, who's a partner in our antitrust practice in D.C., who focuses on antitrust litigation, and prior to joining Freshfields, was a lead trial attorney at the DOJ Antitrust Division, where she tried exactly the type of cases that we're talking about today. Hi, Julie. Hi, it's great to be here. Then we have Jamelia Ferris, who's a partner in our antitrust practice in D.C., who focuses on merger matters, civil conduct investigations, and counseling, and has served in various leadership positions at both the DOJ and the Federal Communications Commission. Hi, Jamelia. Hi, Jen. Excited to be recording my first podcast. And then to give a little bit of international flavor to our discussion, also with us is Martin McElwee, who's a partner in our antitrust practices in London and Brussels, and who has worked in the past years on a number of tricky multi-jurisdictional merger reviews, including one that recently faced a challenge by the DOJ. Hi, Martin. Hey, Jen. Hey, everyone. So first, let's maybe just talk a little bit about what these transactions are. I think the Illumina Grail transaction is one that our listeners will know about quite well, and it's something we've talked about on the podcast before. But I think it would be useful to give maybe a little bit of background on the United Change Health and the U.S. Sugar Imperial Sugar deals, which have been a little more U.S. specific. So maybe to kick us off, Jamelia, can you just give us a quick rundown of what was going on in the United Health deal? Yeah, happy to. This one really is chock full of learnings for future deals. It was partially a vertical transaction, which really was the core of a lot of the issues. United Health is the largest health insurer in the United States, acquiring Change Healthcare, which is a leading data clearinghouse for insurance claims. There was also a horizontal element involving an overlap in first-pass claims editing technology, really technology that you use to evaluate whether a claim will be covered and so was relied on by other competitors in the space. The deal value was $13.8 billion, but it was a U.S.-focused transaction, as you noted. The deal was announced in January 2021. And just over a year later, DOJ sued to block, claiming a couple things. The transaction would give United Health access to its rivals' health insurance data through change, sort of the type of concern you think about in a vertical transaction. And also the loss of competition in the horizontal overlap was cause for concern. Now, United had proposed to fix these issues. They had proposed to address the horizontal concern through a divestiture to a private equity buyer, kind of a clean divestiture and what one might imagined in a horizontal deal, as well as addressing the data access concerns through a firewall remedy, a firewall remedy that was not inconsistent with how competitor data had been handled in their business on a day-to-day basis already. But in both instances, DOJ alleged that those proposed fixes were insufficient and perhaps inefficient. In September of 2022, the court issues its decision, this just past month, denying the challenge. In fact, he found that the divestiture remedy addressed the potential concern and that 
the potential buyer, who was a PE firm, was a credible and suitable buyer. Two lessons um, learned from that transaction, which I think are important because they relate to some of the issues that the agencies are focused on, and that also the firewall plan was sufficient to address the data concerns. Again, it was a deal limited to the United States, so it was allowed to go forward, but I think is something that people will talk about for some time. Thanks, Jamelia, and you know, lots to unpack there, but before we get into it, Julie, can you maybe give us a little bit of background on what is happening with this sugar deal? Sure thing, Jen. The sugar case involved a $315 million deal that would integrate the sugarcane farming capabilities of U.S. sugar with the refining capabilities of imperial sugar. And the geographic focus of this case was actually even smaller than the United States. It was the southeast region of the United States. Now, this was a pretty typical horizontal merger challenge. The DOJ did not pursue any particularly novel theories of harm. But what was unique about this case was that the merging parties called an economist from another agency of the federal government, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, to testify at the trial. And that testimony showed that the USDA which has the power to control the domestic supply of sugar in the U.S., possesses the capabilities to mitigate any harm that could potentially occur as a result of the merger. So after a bench trial in the spring of this past year, the Delaware Federal Court in September ruled in favor of the merging parties. And, you know, the Delaware Court carefully evaluated both the facts and the expert testimony that was presented at the trial and found that the DOJ had failed to identify a proper relevant antitrust market. The court rejected the DOJ's proposed product market, which excluded distributors from the competitive set. And the court also found that the evidence at trial showed that distributors did in fact compete with refiners and with cooperatives for commercial sales of refined sugar. The court also rejected the DOJ's proposed geographic market of the southeastern U.S. as too narrow because refined sugar is cheap and easy to transport long distances, as the evidence at trial demonstrated. And these findings alone were enough to sink the DOJ's case. But the court went on in the opinion and stated that even if the government had been able to show that the deal would likely raise refined sugar prices in a proper relevant market, the USDA could safeguard against any anti-competitive effects. Really interesting, Julie. And maybe before we move on to the third transaction, let's just talk a bit about these two deals. And I think, Jamelia, merger challenges are obviously not a new thing in the U.S., but having multiple decisions, three decisions like this in one month is really kind of a a high mark of enforcement. You know, what does that tell us about the enforcement trends that we're seeing in the U.S.? I mean, I think it can tell us a lot. As you know, merger challenges are not so unusual. I think the majority, if you look at the stats, the majority of deals in the U.S. that receive a second request that are thoroughly investigated are either 
abandoned, remedied through a settlement or blocked outright. So if you get a second request, that's really a sign of where the potential of your deal could end up. So we know that, but now we have the courts engaging in a different way, in part because the agencies are committed to a policy they've been articulating for some time. That is, they plan to litigate or challenge mergers outright and not resolve competition concerns through settlements. Three years ago, U.S. antitrust lawyers would say behavioral remedies that is remedies that regulate going forward conduct would be really hard, but if a divestiture remedy of a standalone business to a credible buyer should be doable. The agencies are saying, as you can see in the change enforcement challenge, a divestiture remedy really just isn't enough, and we're not in the business of clearing deals, they have said. So now companies need to be prepared to potentially litigate in court, even when they're willing to acknowledge that they need to resolve some competition concern. And so what the court decisions tell us is that the courts are going to have something to say about that. So it's not going to be the case if parties are prepared to litigate that the agencies, particularly in a U.S.-only deal, are going to be able to scuttle a deal. And in fact, that the courts are going to fully hear parties' arguments and the DOJ might not necessarily have the advantage on those. So that's kind of going to guide us to future enforcement efforts, I think. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because on the one hand, you know, I hear you saying we have the agencies saying they're going to be more aggressive, they're going to litigate more cases, they are going to accept fewer settlements. But then on the other hand, what we also seem to be having in these decisions specifically is the courts really acting as a limiter on just how successful an aggressive enforcement agenda like that can be. Julia, is that right in your view? Yes, Jen, I think that is right. The U.S. courts are really just doing what they've been doing for years, which is to carefully consider the facts of each particular case at hand in light of the existing legal precedent. But, you know, under the Biden administration, we've seen the U.S. antitrust agencies using aggressive rhetoric and issuing some pretty bold statements about taking a more activist approach to antitrust enforcement. But the reality is that these agencies don't have the power to stop mergers by themselves in the U.S. They have to take their merger challenges to court. And this means they have to contend with decades of really well-established legal precedent. And today, they have to contend with judiciary that leans more conservative than it has in a while, given the Trump administration's many appointees to the federal bench. And, you know, many of those Republican appointees will be inclined to limit perceived regulatory overreach. So if the government has a weak case or it has to gerrymander a market definition to make the shares of the merging parties look bigger than they really are, or if they undercredit a credible remedy that's been proffered by the merging parties, then the government has a good shot at losing the case. So, Martin, we've been having a very U.S.-specific discussion over here, but I've spent some time in Brussels, and as far as I know, the U.K. and the EU, they have courts, they have appeals. Is there the same dynamic on your side of the pond where the courts can really act as a limiter on what the agencies are doing? Yep, you're dead right. We have courts, we have appeals, but it is a very different dynamic indeed. There are a few different dimensions to that, I think. First... The agencies in the UK and in Brussels, the CMA and the European Commission, they have got their own definitive decision-making power, including the right and the power to block a merger outright. 
and the courts then are only involved in appealing that initial decision. Timelines, also pretty different, in particular in the EU, where you can see a, an appeal process often lasting several years, and that is just a period of time you can't realistically build into your merger timeline. And third, they are more specialist bodies. The courts that hear competition appeals, especially in the UK, and they have a higher standard of review. And that has led, in many cases, to what I think it's fair to say is a greater degree of deference to the agency, to the CMA or to the European Commission. A couple of examples might be useful here. The first of those is 302. So a big mobile merger that took place uh, a few years ago took place back in 2016. A prohibition decision issued that year. That got appealed up to the General Court in Luxembourg. That took place in 2020. That got appealed again, and we are only likely to get the final decision next year. Just think that's six plus years, six or seven years since the original prohibition decision. That is just, that's unfeasible in a merger timeline. Other interesting case, Facebook Giphy in the UK, uh, or Meta Giphy as we now call it. That was quite a contentious prohibition decision from the CMA, but was effectively fully backed on appeal to the Competition Appeal Tribunal. The chief executive of the CMA described it as a, a resounding endorsement when it won on all the substantive points in that case. Now, it did lose on a minor procedural point, and actually just today the CMA has issued its second decision in that case, dealing with that minor procedural point. And sure enough, it has re-prohibited and said that, that Meta must divest Giphy altogether. That's taken a little less long, but in that case, you can really see the degree of deference afforded to the CMA by the Specialist Competition Appeal Tribunal. Yeah, and Martin, maybe just to draw out the comparison, I mean, you mentioned in the Hutchinson Appeal there were effectively about five years between the prohibition and the judgment and compare that to what Jamelia said at the beginning about the United Change decision where the suit was filed in February and we have a decision by September, so only eight months. So it's just a completely different dynamic in terms of whether the underlying deal itself can proceed at the end of the day. But we've talked a lot about these U.S.-specific deals, and they involve U.S. companies, they implicate U.S. markets. But the third decision that came down in September is a little different in that it is a very international investigation. And so, Martin, can you maybe, for people that are less familiar, just give us a little bit of background on what is happening in Illumina Grail? Yeah, really, really interesting case, this one. So this was a vertical transaction between Illumina, which is a DNA sequencing provider, and Grail, which develops a non-invasive multi-cancer early detection test. Big deal value, 7.1 billion, but Grail's product and the Grail business was very, very much nascent, very much in development. This was a case that was reviewed by the FTC and by the European Commission. Interestingly, not reviewed by the CMA. And we might come back to that in a minute as to why that was. Timeline, 
This was a case that was controversial also because the parties closed before the authorities could complete their review. And that is generally a big no-no in Brussels and has led to, let's say, considerable controversy between the parties and the Commission. But let's have a look at what happened in each of the two jurisdictions. In March 2021, the FTC sued to block that transaction on the grounds that they said it would diminish innovation, smother competition in the US market for those early detection tests. But in September of that year, the FTC admin court dismissed that complaint, finding that the FTC had failed to prove Illumina's ability and incentive to substantially lessen competition. Then come over to Europe, where the European Commission reviewed the transaction based on a referral up from member state authorities itself, somewhat controversial. Shortly after, the US courts had concluded that the deal should not be blocked, the Commission took the opposite view. It took the decision that the deal should be prohibited entirely, so an opposite finding on the same transaction by the authorities in the US and in Brussels. And that is what makes deal doing difficult when you've got the same facts essentially in front of two regulators who reach diametrically opposite conclusions, albeit with the intervention of the court, of course, in the US. Yeah, and Martin, I mean, it's not just an academic distinction, right? Because we're talking about two deals in the US now that will be able to proceed to closing. And then Illumina Grow, which had just as much success in the US, but is not going to be so lucky. (laughs) And it's that multi-jurisdiction element that makes the difference, isn't it? So winning in front of one regulator or winning in front of the courts in the US isn't going to be enough to save the deal if you can't persuade the regulators in Brussels or in the UK to do the same thing. And it is worth saying, this isn't the first time it's happened. Another example from a few years ago, Sabre Fair Logics, that got permitted by the US courts. And just a couple of days later, the CMA indicated that it was minded to block it entirely, which led the parties to abandon the transaction. So the authorities on this side of the Atlantic are prepared to take the bull by the horns and take some quite firm action, even where the US courts have reached the conclusion that the deal should go forward. So, Jamelia... Does this mean, you know, if I'm a company sitting here, I'm thinking about what deals I want to do, that I should just focus on those kind of U.S.-specific deals because they're just going to fly through the merger control process, everything's easy, they're all going to get cleared by the courts at the end of the day? Well, all going to be easy and going to be cleared by the courts at the end of the day probably isn't going to happen, including because, you know, once you're in front of the court, I think both parties feel like they have a strong case and different things happen in front of different judges. And as Julie can say, much better than I can, because this is what she does on a day-to-day basis, the courts can be unpredictable and judges can be unpredictable. So, but certainly a U.S. only deal could be easier to, to defend, right? I mean, that absolutely has to be the case because you're still, there is an end game in sight, right? There's one regulator, they may choose to challenge the deal, but you have the potential to have your day in court in a way and on a timeline that's very different than what Martin described. 
I think we may ultimately see the agencies reluctant to bring challenges in federal court. We certainly haven't seen that yet, and they're giving no indication that that is the case. In fact, they're, I think so far the rhetoric is, and the, it seems to be carried out in their enforcement decisions, that they're prepared to litigate, even if they may not have the strongest case from the parties or an outside commentator's perspective. But... I also think what you'll see the agencies focus on in a U.S. deal is figuring out ways to rely on the investigative process to really convince parties to abandon the transaction. They have a lot of levers at their disposal to slow down a transaction. Parties need to be attuned to those and also be prepared to move quickly. So nothing's easy, but it's probably a cleaner path in the United States. Yeah, and building on what Jamelia just said, you know, I think where there are parallel processes in other jurisdictions, the competition agencies in the U.S. might feel that they have less reason to hold back on litigation. They can be the first to bring an enforcement challenge, knowing that even if they lose the challenge, the regulators in the U.K. or the E.U. can successfully block the transaction, as happened with Sabre Paralogics a couple of years ago. But this backstop obviously doesn't exist for deals that require review only by U.S. regulators. Now, keep in mind that every case that the DOJ or the FTC loses in court creates more bad legal precedent for their next merger challenge. And at some point, that may impact the agency's risk calculation. But I agree with Jamelia. I don't think we're at that point yet. You know, as we've seen, for example, the DOJ's unsuccessful challenge and appeal in the AT&T Time Warner matter back in 2018-2019 created bad legal precedent for the agencies on vertical mergers. And this was something that benefited the merging parties in the United Health Change litigation. Another area where the government's aggressiveness has created case law, which is helpful for merging parties is with respect to litigating the fix, as we call it here in the U.S. Courts have credited remedies proposed by merging parties in a number of recent cases, including AT&T Time Warner. There was a behavioral remedy proposed there of baseball-style arbitration. In New York versus Deutsche Telekom, uh, there the parties T-Mobile and Sprint offered a combination of behavioral remedies plus the divestiture of a very small subset of assets to a third party. And then, of course, in United Health Change, where there was a divestiture of a certain group of assets to resolve the government's horizontal concerns. Yeah, I think this point that you're making, Julie, about how the agency's incentives and risk calculation might change over time is, is really interesting. And Jamila, I wonder, you know, if you were still sitting at the DOJ right now and you're looking at this landscape Do you think there is an incentive if a multi-jurisdictional deal comes across your desk to try and get the EC or the CMA to do the dirty work to, uh, as Martin said, take the bull by the horns over there so we can not have to go through this court process in the U.S.? Well, I mean, certainly an interesting angle and you can't rule that out. I mean, I think regulators are wise to look at the broad array of tools that they have to block deals that they think are a problem. And once you bring in other jurisdictions, if you can stay closely coordinated with them, then you're able to rely on their tools as well. You see the same thing happen on U.S.-only deals that also involve regulatory clearance, for example, at the Federal Communications Commission. It does require clear coordination. I think there are 
mechanisms in place at the agencies to allow for that. I think for a long time, what you used to see with the regulators is wanting to be sure that you didn't come out with divergent outcomes. That was where the emphasis was in terms of coordination. But I think as you suggest, now the likely focus is how can we work together in a way that maximizes our ability to challenge a deal that we've all agreed should be challenged. I think that sort of speaks to companies similarly needing a coordinated strategic defense as well. So if the regulators are talking, then obviously your lawyers need to be talking about the strategy. And there again, I think it used to be what you would hear people say is, well, we just need a coordinated message as we engage with the regulators. But it is so much more than that now. You really need a coordinated strategy because a wise regulator would be looking at all the tools. So Jamelia, I mean, picking up then on that, that last comment from you, I mean, if you're sitting here with your counseling practice, tell me how are these developments in a really practical way impacting clients' you know, transactional strategy? So I think it requires, again, kind of a clear strategy from the beginning among lawyers who understand the intricacies of the review process in other jurisdictions to really be working closely together and to map that out. I think it's important for companies to think about their commitment to the deal and how far they're willing to go and bake that in to a transaction. In the U.S., for example, I think companies need to be clear-eyed as to whether or not they're going to litigate and if they're going to litigate, if there's a remedy they want to put in front of the court. So those are just some of the things, the many things to con- for companies to think about as they're negotiating deals. And, you know, to build upon that, I think in many cases, the resources of the merging parties may be better applied to persuading regulators outside of the U.S. not to block the deal. And this will ensure that if the firms decide to litigate against the U.S. regulator, a win is more likely to save the deal. Firms want to avoid a situation like Saber Fair Logics, where they win in a U.S. federal court, but then the CMA turns around and blocks the deal anyway. Completely agreed. And these are issues you really have to take into account in the context of your overall deal timeline. From a US point of view in particular, it is really important, of course, to build in that time to litigate, to demonstrate, I suppose, to the US agencies that you're prepared to litigate if that's what it takes. And even in Europe or the UK, That threat remains something that the agencies do think about. They hate the idea of losing in court. So standing firm with what your view of your case is, thinking about the constraints on your timeline, whether those are commercial or external from things like the UK takeover code, all of that has to be taken into account right up front in deal planning stage. Well, we are just about out of time, but I want to thank uh, Jamelia and Julie and Martin for such an engaging discussion, really a lot for, I think, companies to think about as they're considering their strategies over the coming months and years. Maybe before we go, I could get each of you to just say in one sentence or less, one key takeaway that you think clients should take away from all of this. And Martin, maybe we start with you. Okay, okay. footprint, footprint. Think about what the geographic scope of your deal is and what that means for potential timelines. How about you, Jamila? Well, picking up on Martin's timeline point, really think hard about the timeline as it relates to your commitment to the deal and your commitment to litigate to be kind of clear-eyed as you're thinking that through and have a strategy for that potential litigation should it arise. And Julie, how about you? 
Where the facts allow and given existing legal precedent, clients can successfully use litigation to close a deal, even over the objections of U.S. regulators. Great. Well, thank you very much to all three of you, and thanks to everybody for listening. We're going to be with you next month for a new episode where we're going to talk about the increasing or returning trend to dawn raids in Europe, including some which has happened at private homes. So if you've ever had a recurring nightmare about the EC knocking on your door at seven in the morning while you're in your pajamas, that is one that you should certainly not miss. So thank you again for your time today, and we will see you next month with more Essential Antitrust.